so welcome everybody to the last meeting of this term. Very nice to see you all. Um, today we have Jessica Leach from the University of Sheffield. Um, Jessica has just submitted a book and is starting work on a new topic. This is one of its first um, trials and she's going to talk to us about the Mariology of Representation. Jessica, thanks very much. Thank you. So thank you to the Aristotelian Society for the invitation and thank you all for coming. Uh, I'll just start. So this is my starting point. It's natural to think of the world around us as containing whole things made up of or decomposable into their parts. There are lots of different kinds of things, so there are lots of different kinds of part-whole claims we might make about them. Just to give you a few random examples, we might say that uh, there's a wall made from Lego bricks, and there's a little Lego castle for you there. Uh, we might say that a table is made from a tabletop and legs. Um, we might think that human beings have body parts, so we're all a whole human body with some parts. Um, head, shoulders, knees and toes, heart, lungs, etc. A flower plant has petals, a stem and leaves, etc. as its parts. We might say that the first movement is a part of the whole symphony. A cake can be cut down into slices. Um, we might say something like algebra is a part of mathematics. So the point of putting examples like these um, up here is just to emphasise that there's lots of different kinds of things we might try and make part-whole claims about. Some of them we might want to take more seriously than others. So I think it's an interesting question where we're making genuine substantive claims about part and whole that we should do some serious metaphysics about and where these claims are really just meant to be metaphorical. So for example, to say that algebra is a part of mathematics, it's not clear to me how seriously we should take that beyond it just being metaphorical. Um, I guess I don't think of mathematics as a thing with lots of different parts. Whereas something like saying a wall is made from bricks seems to me to be fairly straightforwardly a genuine case where there's a whole thing made up of parts and we might be interested in the kinds of principles that a case like that exemplifies. So as I say, if we take some of these examples seriously, we're going to have to think about different conceptions of part and whole and different ways that parts and wholes relate to each other. So if we take, take seriously some of these very different part-whole claims, that means we're going to have to think seriously about how to accommodate these different claims in our myriology, where myriology is just the study of part and whole. One particular contrast we might be interested in is the following, that it seems that in some cases, wholes existentially depend upon their parts, but in other cases, the parts depend upon the holes. Take again, for example, the wall made out of Lego bricks. Seems here that the whole wall depends for its existence on the parts, whereas the parts, the individual bricks, could exist, uh, could have existed uh, completely independently of whether or not we made a wall out of them. By contrast, take the idea of a human body. There it seems that we don't get human bodies by taking a big bunch of body parts and stitching them together. There you go, you have a body. Bodies don't work like that. Rather, they're organic holes that grow, and it's only as you have a whole body that you can then maybe carve it up or discern parts in the whole. So I'm particularly interested in um, this contrast in the difference dependent claims we can, dependence claims we can make um, between uh, parts and holes. My focus today is on a particular group of claims we might make about parts and holes, namely those that we make about our mental representations. It seems that philosophers do tend to make lots of claims about parts and holes when it comes to representations. Uh, to give you an example, which uh, probably we've all heard, you might say that the concept unmarried is a part of the concept bachelor, or the concept man is a part of the concept bachelor. Are we supposed to take these kinds of claims about our representations seriously? You might think partly this talk today is, is just testing that out. If we do try and take claims about the part-whole structure of our representations seriously, where do we end up? 
If you think where I end up is ridiculous, then maybe you take this as a, a reductio of the idea that we should take these claims seriously. Um, otherwise, uh, the purpose is to begin from the point of thinking there are at least some genuine mereological claims about our representations, and we should do a little bit more thinking about what that actually boils down to. So we're going to have to think a bit more about the nature of representations um, and what they have to be like in order to understand how they can have the, the part-whole structures that we're ascribing to them. Hence my title, The Mereology of Representation. That's, that's where I'm coming from today. So to ask, in what sense can met mental representations have parts? That's a really big question. So what I'm going to do today is narrow my focus to consider a kind of a particular sub-part of that question. Um, I'm going to consider just two kinds of representation that come out in Kant's work, um, his distinction between intuitions and concepts. There are various reasons for narrowing down my question in this way. Partly, um, I know Kant's work relatively well, so it's easier for me to think about these representations. Partly, I have an ulterior, a slight ulterior motive, in that I think if we can make good on a distinction with, between intuitions and concepts, so if Kant is right that there's a, a distinction between our representations of this kind, then lots of interesting consequences follow. So elsewhere, I've argued that Kant has an argument for the purpose of modal judgment, um, that rests on this distinction. So the very, the very purpose of making judgments about possibility and necessity for Kant might seem to rest on our being able to make this distinction. But I'm not going to talk about that today, just to give you a sense of why I've focused in on, on this distinction. Another reason for focusing in on intuitions and concepts is that there's a very clear sense in which um, there's a mereological aspect to this distinction. Kant and Kant commentators uh, seem to attribute various mereological structures to these representations, and I'm interested in finding out whether we can really make good on that, really make sense of those as substantive rather than merely metaphorical claims. So first of all, I'm going to give a very brief outline of the Kantian background and the target distinction and draw out what the part-whole claims are supposed to be. So that's going to be extremely minimal. I'm just going to say enough Kant so that you know... Uh, what it is I'm talking about. Then I'm going to go through and consider some ways in which we might take representations to have parts and explain why they can't help us to understand the mereological structure of intuitions. So I'm going to go through a few options. Some of them I'm going to say are relatively promising when it comes to thinking about the structure of concepts. Intuitions, I think, are much more challenging. I think in general people are more happy to accept that there are concepts and they have something like the structure um, that I'm going to talk about. Intuitions are a little bit more um, contentious, whether there really are genuine representations of that kind and how they could have the structure that Kant describes to them. So um, in the end, my focus is going to be more on intuitions. So at the end of the talk, then, I'm going to introduce my preferred way to think of the nature of intuitions, which allows us to accommodate their mereological structure. And the way I'm thinking about intuitions there is very much driven by trying to understand how we could make sense of these mereological claims. So if we decide that none of this works, then that might be a reason to go back and cast doubt on the mereological claims. To Kant then, intuitions and concepts. So for Kant, an intuition is a singular and immediate representation. So he says an intuition is immediately related to the object and is singular. The idea of it being singular is that it just represents a single thing, and the idea of it being immediate is that it um, represents it directly. It doesn't work via any kind of intermediary. The role of an intuition is to present objects to the mind or to present the perceiver with objects. Again, Kant says, in whatever way and through whatever means a cognition may relate to objects, that through which it relates immediately to them is intuition. So the idea of an intuition is it's that, it's that kind of representation that puts us directly in touch with the world. 
By contrast, concepts are general and immediate. So by general, Kant means that they can apply to more than one thing. And the idea of it being immediate representation is that it uh, represents uh, by means of a mark. So the idea of a mark is a characteristic that many things can have in common. And the idea then is that our concepts represent those things by means of those features that they have in common. So for example, my concept of a frog can apply to more than one thing, all of the frogs. And the idea is that it applies by virtue of characteristics that frogs can share. For example, their shape, their behavior, the fact that they jump about, maybe their DNA, various things like that. The role of concepts is to describe, characterize, and compare objects in thought. So the thought is that we need intuitions to put the mind directly in touch with objects in the world, but we need concepts to apply to those things to see them as being a certain way. So whenever I give talks, I always end up talking about chairs because they're the things in front of me. So it's a boring example, but for example, you know, so there's a chair there, what allows me to kind of perceive the chair, have thoughts about the chair, is first of all that I've got an intuition that puts me directly in touch with it, and also that I'm applying concepts like the concept of a chair so that I can see it as a chair. For Kant, it's really important that we need both intuitions and concepts in that way. They combine together to give us thoughts about the world. We need intuitions to put us in touch with the world, and we need concepts to describe, characterize, represent the world as being a certain way. So where does Mereology come into this? Where are the part-hole claims? Kant's official way, as it were, or the explicit way that he distinguishes between intuitions and concepts is in terms of singularity, generality, mediacy, immediacy. However, when it comes to some of his arguments for the conclusion that a particular representation is an intuition rather than a concept, it actually looks like he's appealing to some mereological claims about the structures of these representations. So we come across arguments that have the rough, this kind of rough approximate form. So he'll start saying um, a representation R has some particular mereological feature M. Then two, well, concepts don't have that feature, but intuitions do. Therefore, the representation is an intuition and not a concept. So even though it's not part of, as it were, the official definition of what these representations are like um, to appeal to their part-whole structure, when we, get, we do get these arguments where it looks like Kant is appealing in the background to some claims about the part-whole structure of intuitions and concepts. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, so just to read through this passage, uh, this is where Kant is arguing that our representation of space is an intuition. So Kant isn't very careful about saying space and representation of space as separate things. Um, I'm going to try and kind of regiment that a bit. I'm reading this as an argument about our representation of space. Um, if, you, if you're not convinced by that, we can talk about that in the discussion. So Kant says, space is not a discursive or as is said, general concept of relations of things in general, but a pure intuition. So the passage starts with just a statement of what he's going to argue. Our representation of space is an intuition. For first, one can only represent a single space, and if one speaks of many spaces, one understands by that only parts of one and the same unique space. So first of all, I mean, so what comes next in the passage I take it as just a few observations on how we represent space, on what our representation of space is like. That first observation, I think, speaks to the singularity of intuitions. We represent one space, and then it continues. And these parts of space cannot, as it were, precede the single, all-encompassing space as its components from which its composition would be possible, but rather are only thought in it. It is essentially single, the manifold in it, thus also the general concept of spaces in general, rests merely on limitations. So here is where we get the kind of myriological description. We represent space as being a whole which is prior to its parts. So the way I like to think about this is there's some space in this room and we can discern parts of space. So for example here there's a kind of 
cubic foot of space. The way we represent space is not as though space is built up of a load of those little bricks. So if we had lots of cubic feet of space and we put them together, we'd get one big space. Um, it's not something, a whole which is composed out of priorly existing or independently existing parts. Rather, pr space is presented to us as one whole, and we can discern parts in space by limiting down space, by kind of drawing off chunks of space. But they're mere limitations which depend on space as a whole as being prior to them. From this it follows, continues Kant, that in respect to it, an a priori intuition grounds all concepts of them. So Kant also thinks that our representation of space is a priori, but I'm not going to talk about that now because it's not important for what I want to get from this passage. He does allow that we have a concept of space. It seems reasonable that we can think about space, that we can represent things as being in space. What's important, though, is that um, our intuition of space grounds all of our concepts of space. So the thought is it's our most fundamental representation of space is an intuition, seemingly because of um, these features of the way that we represent space. Okay. What can we take from this, then? Um, it seems to be that in the background, there's the following mereological claim. On the one hand, the whole of an intuition is prior to its parts. So the parts of an intuition depend upon the whole. On the other hand, the parts of a concept are prior to the whole. So a whole concept depends upon the parts. Recognizing this isn't new to me and my paper here. This is something that's been recognized in a number of um, places by different Kant commentators. What I'm interested in is kind of having come across this claim, how should we really make sense of it? Is it just metaphorical or is it really meant to be a substantive claim, a substantive way in which we can distinguish between two kinds of things, two kinds of representations? And if it is substantive, how should we be thinking about what these representations are and what they're like in order to make good on that claim? So that's what I'm going to do in the rest of the talk to try and follow this through and work out how we could um, make sense of what's going on here. So I, as I say, I started out with this broad question, in what sense can mental representations have parts? And now I've narrowed it down. How should we think about the nature of a concept and the nature of an intuition, such that the sense in which it has parts is compatible with Kant's claims about the mereological structure of these representations? Now I'm going to go through um, a few options that I think might be promising in some cases for concepts, but which aren't yet going to help us with intuitions. I'm not going to go exhaustively through all the possible options because that would be very long and tedious. Um, there are some more options in the full version of the paper that I won't have time to discuss now. So I'm just focusing on the ones I take to be the most interesting or relevant. So firstly, we might think that representations have the mereological structure that they represent things as having. It seems to me that this might be suggested by the space argument passage that we've just seen. So we represent space as being a whole whose parts are only limitations of the whole, whose parts depend upon the whole. And from that, we're supposed to conclude that it's an intuition. So maybe the sense in which an intuition is a, as a whole um, is prior to its parts, is simply that it represents things as wholes that are prior to their parts. The problem with this proposal is that it means that we can no longer adequately distinguish between concepts and intuitions in this mereological way. Or another way to put the worry is that we can't now uh, make good on the claim about concepts, that um, the parts of a concept are prior to the whole. Why? because it seems that we can have concepts of things that represent them as a whole that's prior to its parts. So, I mean, the, the most obvious example would be our concept of space. Kant allows that we have a concept of space. Um, if, it's if it's representing space in the right way, surely it should be representing it as a whole that's prior to its parts. So it seems we now have a concept that represents a whole that's prior to its parts. And so according to this proposal, 
Um, the concept would have that mereological structure, which goes against the target view, what we were trying to explain. And there are other concepts. For example, the concept of an organism, I've already sketched out the idea that the whole organism seems to be prior to its parts in an important way, and we have a concept of an organism. So um, I think that we have to leave this option behind because it doesn't allow us to distinguish between concepts and intuitions in the way we wanted to. Another option is to think of representations as abilities. So there are two motivations behind this. First of all, there's a, there's a kind of thought in the background that we should move away from thinking, at least when we're thinking about these um, representations that would go together to make thoughts rather than a representation that's kind of big enough to be a thought with propositional structure or something like that. Um, maybe we shouldn't think of representations as somehow um, things like little pictures or little ghostly sentences um, in which we can kind of discern parts like we would discern parts in a photograph or um, a, a written down sentence or something like that. Maybe we should move away from thinking of representations in that way and think about them in a very different way that will give us a very different way of thinking about their parts. The other motivation behind this move uh, comes from thinking about the generality constraint. So many of you will be familiar with this. Uh, in a very rough and ready way, um, to put it, the generality constraint has it that conceptual representations can be broken down into recombinable parts. So here's Evans, um, who says, if a subject can be credited with the thought that A is F, then he must have the conceptual resources for entertaining the thought that A is G, for every property of being G of which he has a conception. This is the condition that I call the generality constraint. So this is a condition on thought-sized representations of the form something like A is G. Um, I think we can kind of develop this to think about smaller representations, as it were. So I'm going via Richard Heck here, who really brings out um, what might be implicit in the generality constraint, which is that it seems to be about abilities. So Heck writes, the ability to think that A is F must decompose into the abilities to think of A and to think of a thing as F. Abilities that are sufficiently distinct that one's being able to think that A is F may be explained by one's being able to think of A and one's being able to think of a thing as F. Here we have then the idea that we can think of representations as abilities and as their parts as partial abilities. The proposal then is representations are abilities and the parts of representations are abilities that partially explain the whole ability. It seems to me that there's some plausibility here when we're thinking about concepts. Uh, take, for example, um, the thought that um, the concept man is a part of the concept bachelor. So we might think about the concept bachelor um, as an ability to think of a thing as a bachelor. And um, one thing that partially explains my ability to think of a thing as a bachelor is my ability to think of a thing as male. So it seems that if I didn't have the ability to think of something as unmarried and the ability to think of something as male, I wouldn't have the whole ability to think of something as a bachelor. So it seems to get the dependence the right way around. Um, that's also supported by the thought that you might think that uh, if I lost my ability to think of something as a man, then that would impair my ability to think of something as a bachelor. So I think there's some plausibility there when it comes to concepts. Does this help us think about the nature of intuitions? I don't think so. So what could be the ability that was an intuition of X? I introduced the role of intuitions as presenting um, the perceiver with objects, so presenting the mind with an object. Um, so we need intuitions to be able to have thoughts about X, for example. So perhaps we could think of an intuition of X as the ability to have thoughts about X, because we need the intuition to present us with X to be able to think about it. The problem with this, though, is that um, it seems plausible that there could be creatures with the ability to have intuitions, but which don't also have a slightly more sophisticated ability to have concepts. 
In particular, lots of commentators um, of Kant think that, um, according to Kant, animals, um, for example, could have a capacity for intuition, but lack a capacity for concepts. So it looks like we want to at least leave room that we could have intuitions without a capacity for concepts, and so without a capacity for conceptual thoughts. If then we say that an intuition of X is an ability to have thoughts about X, that rules out creatures that couldn't have thoughts but could still have intuitions. So that's too strong. It rules out um, the possibility that there could be simpler creatures that still had intuitions. Can we appeal to slightly simpler abilities then? It seems, again, plausible that an intuition of X would come along with a bunch of various different abilities, say the ability to move around X, track X, sniff X, interact, interact with X in various different ways. The problem here, though, is I think that none of the abilities we might think of seem plausibly even necessary for having an intuition. Um, we could think of lots of abilities that might be associated with an intuition for different creatures, but none of them seem to really be definitive of what it would be to have an intuition. So again, I think um, the idea of a representation as an ability isn't going to help us with intuitions. The final um, option I want to briefly consider but before moving on to my preferred option um, is to think about inferential properties or inferential abilities. So the idea of thinking of concepts in terms of inferential properties or inferential connections, again, is not new, and lots of people have tried to defend that. And again, then, we might think about um, a concept, a concept's parts in terms of um, the concepts falling under which would in imply that something falls under the whole concept and also falling under which concepts would be implied by falling under our whole concept. So, for example, um, if something falls under the concept being a man and it falls under the concept of being unmarried, um, it follows that it falls under the concept of being a bachelor. So it looks like those would be its parts somehow inferentially understood. Again, then, I think there's some scope for thinking about concepts and their parts on an inferential model. So it looks potentially plausible for concepts, um, but not so for intuitions. Partly, it seems unclear um, how to think of an intuition in some kind of inferential structure. It doesn't look like an intuition on its own licenses any inferences or follows from anything. It's just a very different kind of thing. Um, if we think about, um, again, our creature that could have intuitions without being able to have um, concepts or conceptual thoughts, again, it seems like we don't want to tie the having of, a, of an intuition to anything inferential. That seems too sophisticated um, for our simple intuition-only being. So again, I think this isn't going to help us with intuitions. Where are we then? It seems that there might be some promising accounts for the nature and myriological structure of concepts, perhaps in terms of abilities or inferential properties. I'm not going to pursue that more here. I think there's probably a lot more work on that already. What I want to focus on for the rest of the talk is thinking about intuition. How could we think about intuitions to make good on the myriological claims and to make good on the role that they're supposed to play? So as before, as I mentioned before, I want to move away from this kind of rough idea we might have of an intuition as something like a picture, something like a little mental picture, and we could think about the parts of it um, by analogy to the way we think of the parts of a photograph. I don't think that's helpful. Rather, I want to think about an intuition as a relation. So here's the proposal. What if we think of an intuition as an instance of a relation between an object and a perceiver, the presentation relation. So really take seriously this idea that um, in intuition, we're being related to an object, an object's being presented to us. So first of all, thinking of an intuition on, in this way allows us to make sense of the official properties of an intuition, singularity and immediacy. An intuition, um, is singular because it just relates us to a single object. 
So we can think of an intuition just as an instance of a relation between an object and a perceiver. And there's just um, two relata, one object, so it's uh, a singular representation, it just relates us to one thing. Immediacy, again, we can make sense of just in terms of that model of a simple relation between a perceiver and an object. There's no third thing, no intermediary that's enabling or contributing to that presentation of the object to the perceiver. It's worth noting that this way of thinking about immediacy as just a direct relation between a perceiver and an object uh, connects up with the question of whether intuitions are object dependent. So the question is, could there be an intuition without an object genuinely being present to us? Well, on this view, it falls out pretty simply that uh, intuitions are object dependent. If you don't have an object that's being presented to you in this relation, then there just is no instance of that relation. Um, so yeah, a relation needs relata. And this, this connects up to a matter of controversy amongst Kant commentators because in some places it looks like Kant does want to say something very much like this, but in others it looks like he wants to say that we could have hallucinatory or otherwise misleading intuitions. So if I hallucinate that there's a pink elephant at the back of the room, um, it looks like Kant wants to say I'm having an intuition of a pink elephant, but of course there's nothing there. So there are, there are various issues with how we'd want to deal with these kinds of cases, and I give a sketch of a solution to that in the longer version of the paper. I think there is a solution to this. I uh, just wanted to flag it up here in case there are any um, vehement Kant <laughs> uh, readers in the audience. Um, if you want me to talk about that, I will um, in the discussion. Okay, so this then is the core idea um, that's supposed to lead me to an answer to the, the question how we can make sense of the myriology here. Relations just aren't the kinds of things that are composed out of parts. So if an intuition is a relation, that allows us to explain why the intuition as a whole is prior to its parts in a non-metaphorical way that does justice to the role of an intuition. So we do justice to the role of an intuition by thinking of it in terms of a relation, and that allows us to do justice to the myriological claim because relations aren't the kinds of things that are kind of made up out of parts, like walls are made out of bricks. So I should say, to be a little bit more precise here, there might be cases of relations where it seems quite plausible that they are actually complexes out, made up out of other relations. For example, you might think that the cousinhood relation is a complex made up of siblinghood relations and parenthood relations, something like that. So to be more precise, it seems to me that something like the presentation relation isn't like that. There are no obvious candidates for the other relations out of which we build the presentation relation. We just have this direct presenting of an object to the perceiver. So it seems likely to me that this, at least, uh, is a case of a relation which seems that it's not composed out of parts. So the proposal is that an intuition is an instance of the presentation relation. And so this now raises the question, how should we think of the parts of an intuition? If that's what an intuition is, if it's an instance of a presentation relation, then in what sense can it have parts? In what sense does it have parts? This leads me on to a bit of metaphysics of relations. So you might think that it's a bit strange, and I did when I first kind of started thinking about this paper, to start out thinking about claims about representations, thinking about intuitions and concepts, and ending up thinking about universals and states of affairs and things like that. But I think this is part of the overall um, question that I raised at the beginning. If we really want to take these myriological claims to be substantive, then no surprise that we end up having to do some serious metaphysics because they're, see, if we want to take them as serious metaphysical claims about the part whole structures of things, um, no wonder that I end up towards the end of my paper being drawn into doing some metaphysics of relations. So that's my uh, kind of defense of why I end up talking about universals and states of affairs. Okay, so how can we think of a relation, this presentation relation, how should we understand that um, and so how should we understand its parts? 
So a kind of classic way to think about the nature of a relation is a universal, a sui generis entity that can be present in many things at the same time. So in two different um, instances of the presentation relation, it would be one and the same universal. So I have, um, say, an, an intuition of the coffee urn and an intuition of the chair. The idea of a universal is it's the very same relation present in each of those instances. The very same thing relating me to the coffee urn and relating me to the chair. So it's important then, we can't think of an intuition as just the presentation relation, because that would mean that these two distinct intuitions would in fact be the same thing. So if it was just the universal we were interested in, then they would collapse into one because it's one and the same universal relation that's relating me both to the coffee urn and to the chair. Um, so we need to be able to distinguish between different intuitions. We might then graduate onto a view where an intuition is a complex of the presentation relation universal, a perceiver and an object. So the intuition of the coffee urn is a complex made up out of me, the coffee urn and the presentation relation. And my intuition of the chair is a complex made up out of me, the chair and the presentation relation. This allows us now to distinguish between our <coughs> distinct intuitions. The problem, though, is that I think this gives us the wrong myriology. So from the beginning, the challenge was, can we, think, can we find a way to understand the nature of intuitions such that we can make good on or substantiate, substantiate Kant's claim that an intuition as a whole is prior to its parts? But here we have an account of a complex which is a whole that's made up out of independently existing parts, namely me, the coffee urn, and the presentation relation. So I think it gets the myriology the wrong way round. Someone who's familiar with these kinds of views might respond, well, David Armstrong thinks that a state of affairs like that um, is in fact prior to its parts. The world is fundamentally made out of states of affairs. The fundamental building blocks of the world are states of affairs. And then we can discern in those states of affairs uh, particulars and universals. So the thought would be um, the presenting of the coffee urn to me, that's the fundamental constituent of the world. And we can make a formal distinction within that between the particular elements of it, the coffee urn and me, and the universal element of it, the presentation relation. So that would be one way to kind of salvage this as a way to think about intuitions, but it would require us to take on some of the problems with Armstrong's way of thinking about states of affairs. So I'm not going to go into those now. I think it's a difficult view to defend. Just one brief thing to think about. Um, we're trying to find a view according to which the parts of an intuition depend upon the whole. Now, if it turns out, for example, that the coffee urn and I am parts of my intuition of it, then it seems to me very strange to say that I depend upon um, my intuiting of the coffee urn. And it seems strange to say that the, the coffee urn depends at least in part on my intuiting of it. Gives us quite a strange view of uh, um, things like me and the coffee urn, depending for their existence, at least in part, on me intuiting the coffee urn. So rather, I want to move on to a different thought, um, which is to think of an intuition as a trope. So for the uninitiated, just a few thoughts about what a trope is supposed to be. Um, a trope is sometimes called a qualitative particular. So it's a genuinely particular thing, unlike a universal which was kind of present in many, wholly present in many places at the same time. So it's genuinely particular, but it's qualitative. So it, it's something like an instance of a property or a relation. Um, we get classic examples like the redness of the rose. So the redness of a rose is genuinely particular. It's a particular redness but it's also qualitative, it's a redness, it's not, um, it's not a kind of concrete part of the rose like it's, um, thank you, petal or leaf or something like that. So the thought is that tropes are a bit like an instance of a relation, 
So they're going to help us think about intuitions in terms of being relations, um, but they're genuinely particular, so we're not going to fall into this kind of uh, trouble trying to work out how to distinguish different intuitions in the right kind of way. So different instances of the same relation are numerically distinct. So the uh, presenting of the coffee urn to me is a genuinely distinct particular to the presenting of the chair to me. And importantly, we achieve that without having to say that tropes have their relata or their bearers as parts. So whereas on the relational complex view, we manage to distinguish between distinct intuitions, but only in terms of having a, a whole complex whole that had um, the object, say the coffee urn, as a part, now we can distinguish between genuinely distinct intuitions as tropes, but where we don't have to... Um, for example, include the coffee urn as a part of the presenting of the coffee urn to me. Okay, so again, the thought is that appeal to a presentation trope ensures the distinctness of distinct uh, intuitions without requiring the relata to be parts of the intuition in a way that led to trouble before. So this then gives us an answer to the priority question. How can we make sense of a whole intuition being prior to its parts? If intuitions are presentation tropes, then intuitions are prior to their parts because tropes are simple. But now, if that's the answer to the kind of priority question to allow us to say that intuitions as a whole are prior, we now need to say a little bit more about how such a thing could have parts at all. If we're appealing to the idea that a trope is simple, well, that now sounds like it doesn't have parts at all. So we need to make good on that second part of the muriological claim. What allows us to discern parts in an otherwise simple intuition? So it seems to me, and at this point, I'm going to kind of retreat a bit more into Kant. So what I say as my proposal as an answer to this question starts to depend, I think, a little bit more heavily on what Kant says about intuitions and what Kant says about um, our representations of space and time. So there will be kind of ample space here to, to challenge um, the answer by challenging the kind of Kantian background. But at least this is, this is one attempt at an answer to the question. So I think we can appeal to spatial and temporal form of intuitions. Um, and to get into how I think this is going to help us, I'm going to look at Kant, some of Kant's arguments for why he thinks that space and time are forms of intuition. So as well as arguing that our representations of space and time are intuitions, Kant also argues that they're pure or a priori. He argues that we don't derive these representations from sense experience, but rather they're representations that we need as a prerequisite for the possibility of being able to have intuitions of objects. But the problem then is, if they're not presented to us by the senses, if they're not presented to us in this way, how can we understand them as being intuitions? The, the idea of an intuition was something presented to us, but we're supposed to already have intuitions of space and time as a prerequisite for being able to be presented with objects. So this is exactly the problem which Kant talks about in these passages uh, from the Prologomena. He says, how is it possible to intuit something a priori? An intuition is a representation of the sort which would depend immediately on the presence of an object. It therefore seems impossible originally to intuit a priori, since then the intuition would have to occur without an object being present to which it could refer, and so it could not be an intuition. There's a kind of puzzle here. How can they be intuitions if they're not presented to us in sense experience? His answer is this. He says, there is therefore only one way possible for my intuition to precede the actuality of the object and occur as an a priori cognition, namely if it contains nothing else except the form of sensibility. So his answer here is that they, um, space and time therefore are the forms of intuition rather than things that are presented to us in intuition. And that's how they get to be intuitive representations, but nevertheless a priori. So although our representation of space and time is an intuition, it can't be presented to us, so it must be the form of intuition. So at this point, we should ask, well, what does he really mean here? Does he mean that space and time um, are genuinely forms of the intuition itself, or are they forms of what is intuited? 
So is it that the in, an intuition itself, my intuition of the coffee urn itself is something with spatiotemporal form? Or is it just that I present the coffee urn as being spatiotemporal? Um, so I'm, I'm going to look at these two options in turn. So the reason for kind of looking at both of them is that the first um, is that the second one, that it's just that we present things in spatiotemporal form, seems by far the more plausible thing to say. But I want to look at the first one as well because it looks like that's the kind of claim that's going on in the background. We're saying um, if, if an argument is really supposed to say um, our representation of space has this structure, so it must be an intuition and not a concept, it looks like there is an appeal there to the structure of an intuition, and indeed this is the kind of claim you get in the Kant commentators who have noticed this. Um, so it would be good to find out if we can still get some parts into the intuition itself, not just into how, we, how the intuition presents things as being. So first then, let's think about the claim that we have spatiotemporal form contributed um, to what is intuited. So objects are presented to us as being in space and time. Now, if that's going to give us an account of the myriological structure of the intuition, then we need to revive an earlier option uh, that I discussed earlier, the idea that representations have the myriological structure they represent things as having. So this would just be to retreat to the idea that all we mean when we say that um, an intuition as a whole is prior to its parts, all we mean is that that's how they have to represent things. That's the structure we rep they represent things as having. Now, the problem I raised for that was that it looked like we could no longer distinguish between concepts and intuitions in terms of that structure because we can have concepts that represent things as wholes that are prior to their parts. So here's my attempt at how I think we can draw out, still draw out a dis distinction from concepts. Um, so here's another passage from Kant when he's talking about the, the simplicity, I think, of intuitions. He says, every intuition contains a manifold in itself, which, however, would not be represented as such if the mind did not distinguish the time in the succession of impressions on one another. For as contained in one moment, no representation can ever be anything other than absolute unity. So from this, from this kind of passage, I think we can take a suggestion that really intuitions are primarily simple, just like tropes were. So kind of strictly speaking, um, an intuitive representation is never anything other than absolute unity. Kind of strictly speaking, they're simple. But um, the only way in which we can discern parts in them, or the only sense in which they could have parts, would be insofar as they represent a spatiotemporal structure. And that's different to concepts because we might think that there are genuinely more robust senses in which we can think of the part-whole structure of concepts. It's just that for intuitions, that's the only way we could think of their structure. So that's my attempt to try and claw back the distinction between intuitions and concepts there. Let's uh, look at the other option then. What if we take the idea that space and time are genuinely supposed to be the forms of the intuitions themselves, just not um, the form in which they have to present things as being? So you might think it's plausible, perhaps tropes, if we're thinking of intuitions as uh, presentation relation tropes, are genuinely temporally extended. So it might be that um, so my intuition of the coffee urn uh, is continuing on right now, it's extended in time, so it at least has temporal parts. But then again, we might raise the same worry, can't we think of concepts as extended in just the same way? So um, if we think of a concept, say, as uh, an ability, you know, your ability to think of something as a bachelor is something that persists throughout time, so that's temporally extended, has temporal parts as well, perhaps. To this, I would make the same form of response. So again, I'd be interested in discussion if you think this form of response is successful. Um, intuitions are primarily simple, just like tropes, but the only sense in which they have parts is insofar as they're extended in time, or also perhaps in space. So you might think that um, 
the relation between the coffee urn and me, the presentation relation between the coffee urn and me, is extended in space because the coffee urn's way over there. It's also extended in time because it's persisting through some time here. Um, and again, even if concepts could also be extended in space or time, depending on how we're understanding their nature, it seems important that there's a, another, much more substantive way that we can think of their mirological structure. Okay. So very briefly, I just want to close by highlighting and responding to a problem. So there's all sorts of questions you might ask. I've covered a lot of ground in the talk, as is the way with kind of talks where you want to present a big idea, um, you end up having to take for granted quite a lot of different points, and I'm sure you're going to ask me about all of those. What I want to do, though, is just talk about a problem which is internal to the dynamics of the paper. So Kant's, um, I've said that Kant's argument that our representations of space and time are intuitions, those arguments rest on claims about the similarity between the myriology of in an intuition and the myriology of those representations of space and time. But now I've suggested that we should appeal to spatiotemporal structure to understand the myriological structure of intuition. So I've appealed to this spatiotemporal form to be able to make sense of how intuitions could have parts. So you might be worrying, doesn't this render that first kind of argument question-begging? If um, I'm only explaining the myriological structure of intuitions in terms of uh, spatiotemporal form, where it looked like that should have been independent in order for that first argument to work. So I'm going to say no. I think the important point that the first argument turned on, the argument, for example, that our representation of space is an intuition, it turned on the priority of the whole. And the answer to why we should think that intuitions um, as a whole are prior to any parts, that turned on thinking of an intuition as a simple trope. That didn't turn on anything to do with spatiotemporal structure. So I think that um, the argument should still be able to work if that's the, the crucial point that's playing a role. And then it's after the fact that we might now consider, well, in what sense could intuitions have parts at all and bring spatiotemporal structure back in. In conclusion then, my main question was to start thinking about what sense, uh, in what sense could a mental representation have parts and think about how we could make good on certain claims that we make about the part whole structure of mental representations. I narrowed that down to ask in what sense concepts and intuitions have parts in order to make good on a myriological distinction between these kinds of representations. And what I hope to have shown is that there are some promising options to explore for concepts, for example, to think of them as abilities, although I haven't defended that in detail, and that there's also a promising option for thinking about intuitions um, in terms of a presentation relation trope. Thank you.